This morning we will look at Psalm 19. So if you have a church Bible, you can turn to Psalm 19. I will read the entirety of the psalm, all 14 verses. Psalm 19, beginning at verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I would simply echo the psalmist's prayer that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 19 is the first psalm that I have memory of memorizing. Uh, my brothers and I memorized it, and we recited it in unison at a homeschool talent show where we were dressed up as cowboys. I still haven't forgiven my parents for that particular moment in my life. C.S. Lewis said that Psalm 19 is the most beautiful poem in all the Bible. And indeed, its vivid imagery, the concreteness of the words, the scope is breathtaking. But perhaps you notice that the psalm feels like two psalms or two poems. You can see the seam in the psalm's fabric. It's obvious. The first six verses are a hymn of praise to God for his creation. Psalmist says the creation itself praises God and declares his glory pouring forth praise with great power and force. And then without introduction, without warning, switches to the second half. A praise, a hymn of praise for the Torah, the law of God. What's the connection? Is this two different poems? What's the relationship? Why does the poet do this? What is the internal logic? What was David thinking? What is the point? What's the relationship? What's going on? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above, day to day, night to night, their voice is heard. All the earth, ends of the world, and then you get this little beautiful ode to the sun. What we have here is an echo of creation, an echo of Genesis 1. God's voice has given creation a voice, and it speaks day to day and night to night. Perhaps that language sounds familiar from Genesis 1. And what is so often missed in the creation account and Psalm 19 is that Genesis 1, and I think Psalm 19 being this echo of Genesis 1, is a liturgical procession. 
God creates a liturgical procession. There is a coming forth of each thing. Light is called forth to praise God. Then the sky or the heavens and the waters are called forth. Each aspect of creation takes place in this liturgical procession, which then becomes a chorus, a symphony of praise. And who is that symphony of praise led by? Who's the conductor who comes out last? Well, it's us, of course. Mankind. Adam. Historically, and even in many churches today, the worship service will begin with a processional, as in a procession up front, a liturgical procession where the choir, the altar boys or acolytes, the scriptures and actual Bible itself, deacons and priests come into the sanctuary, and typically it's while everyone is singing. The late R.C. Sproul's church in Sanford, Florida, does this beautifully. First thing that comes in is someone carrying a candle. Light comes first. Hopefully that makes sense. Behind them will be the choir leading the charge, followed by a cross carried by one of the choir boys, followed by a large Bible, the Word of God. And then, rather than having the pastors sit up in chairs and stare at you awkwardly, the pastors or the priests or ministers will come following. They will come last. We still do this in weddings, right? We have this procession of mothers and grandmothers and bridesmaids and groomsmen, and then the bride. Psalm 19 echoes this liturgical procession, this coming forth of the created order to praise the Creator. And yet there's also something else going on. Because ancient peoples worshipped as gods the powers, the uncontrollable, uncontainable, chaotic powers that be. Water and the wind, the sun, love, wisdom, fertility, Anything that was outside of their control, any power that was beyond them, ancient peoples worshipped these things. They named these things as gods. Genesis 1 and Psalm 19, maybe implicitly for us, say, all these things aren't gods because they were created. And not just that, but even they give praise to this God. All these things praise the true God. Psalm 19 is... A war on idolatry. A war on the worship of anything other than the Creator. And one of the things that is maybe central, maybe periphery, but is is foundational for Psalm 19 and Genesis 1 is the importance of proper praise. Proper praise, proper worship will give order to an unordered life. Just as God's creation gave order to an unordered world, chaos was brought into order. Remember at the very beginning, first two verses of Genesis, God really encounters three problems. He encounters darkness, formlessness, things were without form, and emptiness or voidness. And what does God do? He takes care of the darkness problem with light. He takes care of the formlessness problem with a separation of the expanses and giving borders to the sky and the waters and the land. And then he takes care of the voidness problem with plants and trees and flowers and birds and fish and animals and humans. So God brings order to chaos, order out of chaos. And properly oriented praise, a properly ordered life, a life of praise brings order from chaos. This is why the temple was covered in symbols of the cosmos. In the temple there were trees and angels and jewels and stars and animals and flowers and fruit because all of creation belongs praising God. The temple was a place that called for the whole cosmos to praise God the Creator. 
And in doing so, life is not dark, but light. Not formless, but ordered and structured. Not void, but meaningful. This is what God was doing with the ark, floating on the water with Noah. The ark was just a floating temple that carried with it animals and food because they are part of this liturgical procession of praise. Proper praise properly orients the animals, plants, man, the cosmos. The created order is a gift given to help us become reoriented or to reorder us. I recently heard a story about a bishop's niece. Uh, She was 16 or 17 years old and not doing well, getting into things that she shouldn't have been. But she went on one of these uh, wilderness adventure hikes where you build your own shelters and survive off of whatever you could carry, as well as your wits and stamina, stuff that I'm not familiar with at all. And after around a month or so, his bishop recounted that as his niece came back, she was spiritually a different person. Spiritually, she was awake because of her, according to him, direct encounter with the created order. One of my brother's seminary professors tells the story of how he was converted by a sunset. Creation calls forth an ordering in us. And what do we see? Well, there is the connection to the second poem, uh, the bit about the law. Creation is to bring order to chaos and to set us in proper order. And that is exactly what God's law is there to do. It is another gift to properly orient us, to order us in the world. The law of God brings order to chaos. This is the big picture. This is the entire point of belief, of obtaining information and then believing it. So, for example, we humans gathered information over hundreds, thousands of years, that what goes up must come down, that things are literally pulled down to the earth. Isaac Newton is credited with the discovery of gravity, gathering this information, and now we believe in gravity. More than likely, you didn't jump off your roof and try to fly to get here. And you generally don't walk off cliffs because you believe in gravity. And one of the things that we do as human beings is that we are seeking to gather information. That's what you're doing here, hopefully doing here, is you come to gather some information about who God is, how he works, how the world works, what we should think, feel, and do. We are gathering information. Why? What's the point? What's the point of knowing things, of having, having or gathering, of obtaining information? Well, the goal of information is so that we can line our bodies, our lives up with it. So that we can get in the proper form. Information. Information gets our lives in the proper form. In form. And the law of God is his way of helping us know how to embody, put into form, our lives, so that we live according to the way God has made, created the world. Creation has an order, and the law is given to help us order ourselves according to the way we were created or what we were created to be. Of course, when it comes specifically to laws and rules, well, the law has gotten some bad publicity. We don't like laws. We don't like suggestions, let alone commandments. But if you pay attention, it's really not true. In reality, you love laws. You love rules. In fact, you crave them. There are all kinds of laws or rules that you are following right now, at least most of you, from what I can tell. For starters, 
you're all sitting. Chairs are, have you facing the front. You're oriented towards the front. You're, most of you are facing the front. You're not lying down across the chairs stretched out. Most of you aren't singing or talking. Most of you, as far as I can tell, aren't sitting there with a hymnal and smacking yourself on the head repeatedly. And you all have your clothes on. There are all kinds of invisible social rules or laws that are at play right here. And you are happy to have them. You want those rules in play, and you want other people to obey them. I mean, can you actually imagine if someone in front of you was completely turned around, facing the wrong direction, staring at you, and they were naked? That would freak you out. You'd be on high alert. You would not want to be here anymore. That would be disorder. That would be chaotic. You wouldn't know how to respond to that. You'd be scared, anxious, stressed out. Because rules and laws, one of the many things they do for us, is they keep our anxiety minimized. They keep fear at bay. We want people following rules. As soon as someone breaks rules and laws, it is a breaking down of the order into chaos. Someone bringing, shooting a gun in this building would cause chaos, panic. We would go into alert mode, fight or flight, and all kinds of stress hormones would be released and we would get anxious very quickly. And no one really wants to feel like that. But let me give you another example of how rules and laws are not bad or problematic or enslaving. There are certain rules about how to play an instrument, say, for our purposes, the piano. There are laws we could say. I haven't learned to play the piano, so when I sit down at the piano, I am actually imprisoned to my lack of conformity to the laws or the rules of the piano. But if you submit yourself to the laws, the rules of the piano... Over years, you can learn how to play. You can work on scales, dynamics, your rhythm, etc. And if you obey the rules and laws of the piano long enough, you can sit down with a piece of music and you are free to play, interpret, improvise. Because you keep the laws of how the piano works, following the rules and the laws actually creates space for beauty. Not ever learning and following the laws of the piano, you remain like me in bondage. Same principle with the law. The law allows you to order your life rightly so that you actually experience more freedom, more joy, more happiness. This is why Paul talks about the law as holy and good. Perhaps another example of how the law is a gift from God to us. Classroom teachers, and many of you are teachers, they give rules, they have rules in their classroom. Because there are standards to reach, there are things that need to be achieved. There are things that need to be in order so that those standards can be reached, those goals can be achieved. But if the teacher has standards, has God in his holy, holy, holiness, has standards, and there are consequences for not following the rules... Wouldn't you want to know what the rules are? The classroom teacher never told you what the standards were, never told you what the rules were, but still punished the students when they broke them. That would be awful. That would be paralyzing, crippling. Law of God is a gift so that we know how to function, how to live, so that we don't have the consequences of not following them, and so we can reach the standard, the goal that God has for us. Now, I know that we can talk about the law of God as a gift, of his being gracious to us and giving it to us, but we all know that it doesn't feel like a gift at times. It feels painful. It's annoying. It feels like a burden. Why? 
try to come at this in two different ways. Perhaps think of it like this. Think of your being, your existence, yourself, or maybe who you were made to be, like a puzzle, thousands of pieces, tens of thousands of pieces. The finished product is what you could be, or who you could be, if you get the day right. But you are tens of thousands of pieces, and you're all over the place. Now, you might have a couple hundred pieces put together, but even those are kind of in separate chunks everywhere. The law, in this analogy, is the box that the puzzle came in with the picture on the front that shows you what you could be, what you are supposed to look like, and it's ordered and beautiful and magnificent. God gives you the picture on the box and says, this is what you can be, this is what your life can look like. Well, when you look back at your life and see thousands of pieces scattered all over the place, what does that do? Well, it's painful, or at least revealing, because your life right now doesn't look like that. You suffer. You're in pain. And there are consequences for your actions, and there are consequences for your lack of action. Or maybe a better example. In an effort to get my day right even as we spoke of last Sunday, I obtained a journal called the Self Journal. The way this journal works is that you pick two or three big picture goals, aims, that you want to accomplish in 13 weeks. So it's one quarter of the year. You select a goal and aim a telos. And then the journal has you break down that big goal into more manageable goals or components Weekly goals. So what do you need? So there's a section for your week. What do you need to get done this week as part of that major 13-week goal? Then the journal breaks down your days into 30-minute increments or intervals. So you schedule and you plan your days according to your weekly goal that is part of your 13-week goal. I haven't even started. I could give some very good reasons, but the reason is that as soon as I start that stupid journal, I am going to be exposed for how badly my day is ordered. Just looking at the orderliness of the days and the weeks and the goals in the journal, just looking at it, reveals and exposes my chaos. It shows me how unordered, how undisciplined I am, how I don't follow through, how I waste time. And if I fill that thing out, it's going to reveal even more of my weaknesses, my flaws, my sins, and my lazinesses. I hate that journal. I hate that stupid self-journal. And the law does that. The law is given as the order for a proper life, a rightly ordered life. And the law, like the sun in our poem, is light. And it's going to reveal mess. It's going to reveal stain. The law actually shows us how to get our day right, how to get our life right. Because we don't have our days right. Because we aren't right. And that's what the law exposes. The law points this out, and painfully at times. But this should be, this should be a good thing to know. It should be a good thing to know that you are a miserable disaster. Because if you are a disaster, and there are things you can do, and things you should not do, if there is a way to order yourself, things to stop doing, like lying, we've talked about that, and if there are things you can do so that your life isn't as miserable and isn't a disaster... That's hopeful and exciting. And I think that over the past, this could be 60 years or so, so maybe longer, maybe shorter, this has been a major failing of the church, the church in general. And if we want a scapegoat, Carl Rogers is probably the best one. But in the church, there was a movement of, 
God is love. And he accepts you as you are. You're fine, just the way you are. God loves you in spite of all your failures and flaws. I'm going to tell you why. That's nonsense. And not just nonsense. It's dangerous, it's depressing, and it's damning. We can't act as though everyone is fine the way they are. I think it's actually a great compliment to tell people that they are not fine the way they are, and they have the ability, they have the potential to be so much more to order their life, to structure themselves, to actually become something amazing, something beautiful. There isn't anything more damning that you can tell people than, you're fine just the way you are. Maybe this is you, but think about people who are suffering, people who are in pain, whether their fault or not, people who are nihilistic, people who are confused and disoriented, or hate themselves. They're disgusted with themselves, and probably for good reason. And the church is going to come along and just say, Hey, you're fine just the way you are. That's disheartening. That's depressing. If all the church does is say, God is love, you're forgiven, so now crawl back under the covers and go back to your Xanax. Is that the Christian life? You're forgiven for your failures. Well, yeah, but my marriage is rotting away before my eyes. My kids hate me. And the church goes, well, you're forgiven in Christ. You're fine just the way you are. That's awful. Scripture offers so much more than that. Psalm 19 tells us there is so much more to life than that. Don't tell people they are okay, especially because many of us hate the way we are. Our lives are in chaos and we want some order. We long for some beauty. People are hoping that there is change, that they can change, that they can become someone else, something else. Don't just tell them, you're forgiven and you're fine the way you are. Forgiveness is just the beginning. The church should be saying, you don't know anything. You're barely beginning. You have two pieces of the puzzle, two pieces put together, and we have 9,998 more to go. The church should be saying, yeah, you're, you're, I know you're suffering and I know you're miserable because we're steeped in sin to an almost unmeasurable degree. And we say it compassionately, not judgmentally, because we recognize we are the problem. And we seek to give courage and courage and give hope to people to help them start to eliminate the flaws in their character that no one should be celebrating or saying are just fine. The church's message is that you can become a different person. I think this is a major pastoral failure on the church's part. The church has been peddling a half-truth. If we're only talking about forgiveness and not about transformation... What I mean is that there is a mentality that can come across or imply that all you are for, that your existence is just to be forgiven. Like all you need are constant baths. You're dirty. And your life is just one of bathing. Yeah, we've got to get that off. And you get dirty again. And we've got to get that off. As if Jesus is just a car wash for sinners. Like you just exist to get washed. So you go from clean to dirty, clean to dirty, and Jesus just came to clean you up. No, no, no. He does that. But we were meant to bring order out of chaos, to bring beauty out of ashes, to bring bread from dust and turn water into wine, to conquer, to build, to create, to bring order to our lives, to make beautiful families, to make our communities glorious. There needs to be a knitting back together of who we were made to be. We all know the dark power by several names, one of which is Satan, or 
the accuser, and we've spoken about that at length. The other name is Diabolos, the divider, or I prefer, the scatterer. And one of the things Jesus is doing in casting out demons in the New Testament, he's bringing people back to themselves because the demons have them scattered inside, internally fragmented. As sinners, we, all, we are all over the place. Our wills, our minds, our passions are all going in different directions. The puzzle is laying all fragmented, scattered. It's disorienting, anxious, stressed. And God in Christ has conquered sin, death, and hell so that you may be forgiven and transformed into his likeness, into his image. Something powerful, something profound, and even poetic. As Irenaeus says, the glory of God fully alive. God wants us radiant, marvelous, and he gives us help. Creation was rightly ordered and very good, beautiful. Temple grabbed on to creation in color and form and shape, and God was worshipped in the beauty of holiness. When Paul calls our bodies temples, that is what he has in mind. And when he calls the law holy and good, it is because it is a gift given for order, for splendor, and for beauty. Frederick Nietzsche spoke of the death of God, and perhaps you've heard that. Now, many have taken that the wrong way, as if he thought God should be dead. Uh, But for Nietzsche, practically, this was an observation that was worth lamenting. He said that humanity would never find enough water to wash away the blood. What he meant was, if you do away with God... You have to do away with God's ethic or God's law, because one necessitates the other. But if you get rid of God's ethic, God's law, he observed, that would necessitate mankind having to create or being forced to create their own law. He saw that as necessarily intrinsically violent. He foresaw it would be a bloody mess. However, when you look around the world, I don't think we can honestly or accurately say that God has died. It is more like God has been dismembered. Because the heavens still declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, night after night. And if God has been dismembered, then what we need is to remember That's what we do at the table, with gifts of his creation. We do this in remembrance of him. Our God, become flesh, taking on creation, keeping the law perfectly, so that we, who are his workmanship, might live as sons, co-heirs of his kingdom. Beloved in Christ, this is the Lord's Supper. This meal does not belong to Sandhills Presbyterian Church and does not belong to the men who serve you. It does not belong only to Presbyterians. It is the Lord's Supper, and it belongs to all those who have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The table is for all those who desire transformation. This is true of you. Welcome in the name of Jesus.
Almighty God, we do not presume to come to this your table, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, that as we eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and drink his blood, that we would commit ourselves to bring order out of chaos, that we would meditate on your law day and night, that we might be like a tree planted by streams of water, happy and blessed. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.